G'day and welcome to We're Only Here Once. I'm James Wiley and these are my stories. I hope you enjoy the ride. 1993, Chapter 16, Chile, Part 1. Chile started slow, then went bananas. Our first hours in Chile should have boggled our minds. The single railway that leads from the Bolivian border to the Chilean coast descends 3,000 metres down a series of switchbacks through otherwise inaccessible desert. The landscape and views must be amazing. But due to Bolivian railways running six hours late, we descended in darkness, with no more than an occasional glimpse of the nearest desert landforms, half lit up by the light of a quarter moon. Very disappointing. The end of the railway line was a small town called Arica, Chile's northernmost industrial port town, where we stopped for a few days. This time we were three. Tessa, an architect from South Africa, who I'd first met months before in Colombia, and Sanara, a Sri Lankan physiotherapist from Coogee in Sydney, who'd walked the Inca Trail with Tessa a couple of days before me. We'd met by chance in the Kamikaze Club in Cusco and teamed up for the next couple of weeks to travel through Bolivia, visiting Lake Titicaca and La Paz, then walking another three-day Inca Trail to Coroico before catching the train through the high desert to Chile. We woke up the next morning at sea level for the first time in over a month. And after 10 weeks travelling through third world Ecuador, Peru and Bolivia, mostly in the Andes Mountains, it felt like we'd returned to the late 20th century. Despite Arica being a fairly small town, it was modern and industrial. Indeed, Chile felt like a European country, perhaps Portugal or Spain. Life was more sophisticated, the locals moved faster, including the way they spoke Castilian Spanish. We'd been thinking we'd been getting pretty good at the Latin American lingua franca, but Chile gave us a reality check. And like Parisians, the Chileans showed little patience with our trainer-wheel attempts to speak their language, especially when many of them found it easier to communicate in English. In Arica, we found a great ice cream shop and some good cafes, and I found some head-high waves south of town at La Isla, then some much bigger, scarier ones at a wave called Los Gringos. But Arica was too much like the modern, high-rise, beachside city suburbs we knew from back home. And everything in Arica was 50% more expensive than in the mountains of Bolivia or Peru. So the only accommodation we could afford was a long walk to the sea. After three days, we caught the night bus 300 kilometres south to another port and local tourist town, Iquique, which was a larger, more modern version of Arica. Nonetheless, we stopped there for a week, playing at being city slickers for the first time in ages. We saw four films in a real cinema, including Falling Down for the second time, and Sliver, which was nominated for six Golden Raspberry Awards that year. The surf went flat, but we spent hours at the beach in the everyday sun, having picnics while watching the alpha males and females parading their magnificent suntans. I tried to read John Updike's novel, Marry Me, but gave up at the line, The horizon seemed to exclude some unseen possibility. And on reflection, it really is bollocks. In early November, Tessa caught the bus south to Santiago to meet her boyfriend. 
A few days later, Sonara and I left Ikike too, though we were made to work for it. Our night bus broke down halfway up the steep hill that led out of town. We shivered for an hour in the desert dark while a replacement bus was organised. When we finally got going again, I made my habitual anxious check out the bus back window and noticed we were leaving my surfboards behind on the roadside. This was the first and last time in 1993 that I'd trusted someone else to load my luggage onto a bus. I had to make an undignified scene from the back seat to get the bus driver to stop. Then, when he reversed grumpily back down the hill to retrieve them, the driver would have crushed my boards under the bus's back wheels if I hadn't screamed some more. That kind of public display doesn't come easily to me, especially in the middle of the night. Once the boards had been roped to the other tonne of luggage on the roof, we drove for only five minutes before the cargo and passengers had to be unloaded again. The port of Iquique is one of Chile's so-called tax-free zones, so tax must be paid on anything bought in and taken out of Iquique. Even at two in the morning, a busload of people and cargo takes a long while to inspect. Then the negotiation and payment of tax, or perhaps bribes, takes longer still. So for several more hours, we went nowhere in the cold. Dull, dull, dull. When we were finally free of Iquique, I was fed up enough to allow Sonara to persuade me to take half a Valium, so we slept most of the 400 kilometres to Kalama. The next day, we bussed another 100 kilometres to San Pedro de Atacama, in the Atacama Desert, and that's where the trip got good again. As I'm sure you'll know, there are some parts of the Atacama Desert where rain has never been recorded. The little, mostly mud-brick village of San Pedro was beautifully atmospheric. Built beside a small oasis, it possesses the only colourful plant life for many thousands of square kilometres of orange-gold desert. Next day was laundry day, and even our jeans dried in under an hour. That afternoon, we shared a taxi with two other tourists to La Bahia de la Luna, the Valley of the Moon, to watch the awesome desert landforms change colour and shadow shape as the sun fell back to earth. We watched the next day's sunset a little further south at Salar de Atacama, a vast salt lake, complete with flamingos, that stretched to where the sun eventually met the horizon. The surface of the white, dry lake is a quilt of endless, interconnected, half-metre-wide hexagons made of salt, each of them a slightly different shape. Apparently, have I got this right, they form when the underground spring water dissolves the salt in the soil, then evaporates in the heat, leaving the salt on the surface. As the sun slid lower, the hexagons turned from white to orange, then pink, as the sky turned from light to dark blue, then purple quite the natural wonder. My photos taken with a simple autofocus camera had no chance of doing the light show justice. Coming home to San Pedro in our shared taxi, we parked up to watch the very last of dusk turn to night. And there, for the first time in six years, I saw the Southern Cross, the star constellation on Australia's and New Zealand's flag, rise above the horizon. I reckon it's time for a poem said a voice from the back seat. Alastair was a fellow Australian we'd met that day in San Pedro. He had an accent any bush poet would envy, and I wish I could have recorded his memorised rendition of The Man from Snowy River, all 104 long lines of it. Holy schmoly, 
it was magnificent. If you've never been to Australia, you probably won't know that The Man from Snowy River is unofficially Australia's national poem. It was written in 1890 by Banjo Patterson. Yep, the same bloke who wrote Clancy of the Overflow, which you might have heard mentioned in the Bolivia chapter. The Man from Snowy River refers to themes we Australians like to think are at the heart of our national spirit. Egalitarianism, collegiality, bravery, ingenuity, athleticism and a love of the wilderness and the underdog. That's a lot of themes to develop in a single story poem, but they're all there. I'd happily recite the whole thing, but here's just the final stanza, and I'll try to get through it without wobbling. And down by Kosciuszko, where the pine-clad ridges raise their torn and rugged battlements on high, where the air is clear as crystal and the white stars fairly blaze at midnight in the cold and frosty sky, and where, around the overflow, the reed beds sweep and sway to the breezes and the rolling plains are wide, the man from Snowy River is a household word today, and the stockmen tell the story of his ride. Somewhere in the middle of the poem, I kid you not, a massive falling star lit up the southern sky, and none of us said anything. Back in town the next day, Alastair's stories of his recent trip to Patagonia at the far southern tip of South America convinced Sonara and I that we should head down to see it for ourselves. Our time was running out, so it'd be a stretch, but we both knew it was unlikely we'd see this side of the Pacific Ocean again. Besides, it was only 3,000 k's further down the road, just a hop, skip and a jump compared to the distance we'd already come. So the next day, after I got a painful tooth fixed by an excellent San Pedro dentist, Sun and I began a series of three night and day bus rides south to Santiago, Chile's capital. What happened next might just have been the best part of the whole year. I know, I know, I keep saying that, but there it is. In Santiago, Sun and I had half a day to get things done. With just a few weeks left in our South American safaris, we had to choose which unmissables we'd miss and which ones we wouldn't. Looking back, it would have been nice to see Santiago's parks, museums and galleries, but what we saw instead in the weeks to come more than made up. Once the post office and bank business had been dealt with, the photos developed and new camera film bought, we raced to the train station to buy tickets for that afternoon's 20-hour, 1,000-kilometre journey south to Puerto Montt, the unofficial capital of Chile and Patagonia. Then from the train station we raced to the office of Chile's national airline to buy tickets for the two-hour, 2,000-kilometre flight from Puerto Montt even further south to Punta Arenas in a few days' time. We chose to buy one-way tickets on the plane because Lonely Planet said there was an infrequent cargo boat that took a few paying passengers from Puerto Natales in southern Patagonia back to Puerto Montt. The staff at the airline office thought this boat no longer ran and encouraged us to buy a return flight which would be a few hundred dollars cheaper than buying two separate one-way tickets. But we decided to take our chances that we'd find the boat, or something similar, to make our way back north once we got down there. Everything in order, we took a taxi to our pension, wedged my surfboards and other luggage we wouldn't need into the storage room, grabbed our backpacks, found another taxi, and made it back to board the train just in time. It had been a really good day, and now we had time to take it all in. (laughs) 
The train ride from Santiago to Puerto Montt must be one of the great train journeys of the world. I don't know if and how it still runs, but in 1993 it was serviced by carriages that were time-transported from the 1930s, the golden era of rail, before everyone owned a car and every road was paved. Our seats were leather, the walls were real wood-panelled with Art Deco light fittings. We felt like we were extras on a movie set. And there was a dining car where you could book a table for two for dinner at seven. la da The set menu was pretty expensive, perhaps a whole 20 bucks each for three courses. But having lived mostly on tin sardines, dry biscuits and fresh fruit for months, Son and I treated ourselves to a silver-service dinner replete with pisco-sour cocktails and red wine with the meal. Yeehaw! Returning to our seats feeling pretty damn good about life, we discovered that an unseen valet had magically converted our seats into a private sleeping compartment with two beds. If you woke up in the night, you could look out to the distant Andes rolling by through the trees in the moonlight. After one of the best imaginable sunrises, a slow-motion clear-sky light show from behind the mountains, teamed with the picnic breakfast we'd bought back in town, the scenery spectacular continued through to the mid-afternoon, this time with added conical volcanoes, as we rumbled through Chile's lake district. Wondrous. In Puerto Montt, the exotic old-school luxury continued, when at bedtime our guest house issued us with hot water bottles straight out of Grandma's English farmhouse. With a couple of days to kill until our flight further south, we teamed up with two American girls to rent a car and explore the Lake District in a bit more detail. We drove north to Puerto Barras, then east along Lake Yanquihue, past two big volcanoes named Osorno and Calbuco, to Petrohue Waterfall, where we saw an actual real-live otter playing in the wild. How about them apples? After a picnic at Lake Todos Los Santos, followed by Chile's best apple pie and coffee at a lakeside cafe, we drove 200 k's north to the coast at Valdivia and Niebla, where we camped after a world-class paella dinner at Los Molinos. That night, heavy rain and low clouds set in. Despite driving all the next day, about 500 k's, hoping the weather would clear to let us see the lakes and mountains, we didn't see much more of the famed Lake District landscape. To the positive, however, when we arrived back late to Puerto Montt, we discovered the cargo and passenger boat arriving from Puerto Natales in southern Patagonia. Once again, the information in Lonely Planet had paid for itself a thousand times over. Further inquiries in town confirmed there was a good chance we'd be able to make our return journey north on this boat in a few days' time. 
The next day, November 16th, we took our flight south to Punta Arenas, the capital city of Chile's southernmost province, called Magallanes y Antarctica Chilena. Wow, we were nearly in Antarctica. From the plain, the spectacular views of the lakes, mountains and glaciers were vividly enhanced by five-star in-flight service that included incredible food teamed with pisco sours, red wine, drambui and whiskey. Happy days indeed. As you can imagine, we arrived in Punta Arenas in blazing good form. We taxied into town and went shopping for the new hiking shoes we both needed, miraculously finding the perfect fit and price at the only shoe shop in town in under an hour. Another hour later, we were aboard the late afternoon bus to Puerto Natales, the jump-off point to the Torres del Paina National Park, 300 kilometres north. At 51 degrees south, it was just after dark when we arrived at 11pm to be met by a gang of teenagers cheerfully arguing over whose parents' guest house we'd stay at that night. With three days of trekking and camping ahead of us in the morning and ten days of constant movement behind us, we slept like logs, under the influence, once again, of the first luxury item in Patagonian hospitality, a hot water bottle in a homemade crocheted jacket. The next morning, we were up bright and early to shop for enough food to enable us to camp in the National Park for two nights. Then we shared a 100-kilometre minibus ride with two English couples to Refugio Pudeto in the northeast corner of Lake Peoje. On the way, we caught our first glimpse of the famous Torres del Paina, which means blue towers in the local dialect, that give the National Park its name. They soared like a vast marlin's fin above the lake-dotted wilderness. As if the park's colour palette was lacking a little zing, we found pink-orange flamingos as we circumnavigated Lake Amarga. From Refugio Pudeto, we took a bracing 90-minute ride in a small powerboat, south, then west, then north, to a campsite in the northwest corner of Lake Peohe. We were the only ones there. We tucked our bags inside the simple refuge hut and set off on the 10-kilometre walk to visit Grey Glacier. With just enough light to make it back to our camp before nightfall, we set a cracking pace, singing and banging metal cups to deter any lurking puma or skunk, two of the park's wildlife residents we less wanted to see. It must have also kept humans away, for we didn't see a single soul the whole afternoon. Where the track skirts Lake Grey, we were surprised to find a postmodern art installation comprising small rafts of blue styrofoam drifting in the lake. Now those of you who know will identify our plum ignorance, but it's not until we got within eyeshot of the glacier that we realised these blue rafts were chunks of glacier-borne ice that had broken off to sail down the lake with the wind. A few k's later, we followed a thumb of land that stretched north into the lake to a viewing point no more than a few hundred metres away from a four-kilometre-wide, hundred-metre-high, gleaming white ice face tinged with every hue of blue. Above the valley, scraped sheer by eons of the glacier's advance, razor-sharp crags framed the late afternoon sky. Despite the freezing wind ripping down the glacier, we sat for ten minutes to listen to the squeaks, cracks and subsonic rumbles of the ice's constant movement. No thesaurus has words that get close to describing the effect this has on the human brain. Growing colder every minute, we tore ourselves away to fast walk back to the campsite. We arrived half an hour after dark, 
not far off midnight, and somehow managed to set up our tent and cook a simple dinner in the howling gale while remaining friends. We woke to sunshine and a gentle breeze that warmed us and dried our tent while we made billy porridge and coffee. Then we packed some food and water in our day packs, stowed the rest of our stuff in the refuge hut, and struck out to get as close as we could to the iconic towers. Our 14k path took us past Lake Scottsburg and through a wild garden of red, white and purple flowers, between groves of red-flowered notro trees and low-growing Lenga Beach. After lunch on the bank of the Rio del Francis, near Campitaliano, we climbed up past the Francis Glacier, a darker and somehow less friendly glacier than the one we'd met the day before. Finally we arrived at a high hanging valley hidden from the wind. The jagged white-grey towers shimmered directly above us in the deepest dark blue sky. They grew taller, more awesome, and changed colour as we walked towards the track's end at Camp Britannico. Our solitary reverie was ended, however, when a cloud bank loomed beyond the lakes to the south. For once I listened to the voice of reason and allowed Sun to convince me we should head back to our camp. She made the right call. We completed the tricky descent out of the high valley just before tearing wind and cold, hard rain whipped in. The storm stole daylight and made the track hard to follow and negotiate. We wanted to rush, but were wary of a fall or of losing the trail. It was way too edgy for our liking. If we'd got lost or injured after dark in that wilderness, we'd have been all on our own for the night. Back then there was no 5G phone coverage, no Google Maps or digital compass to tell you which way was home. No, it would be just you, your simple sodden map and the elephants. With nighttime temperatures averaging just a few degrees above freezing, it would have been an interesting challenge avoiding hypothermia for the long hours till daylight, dressed as we were in shorts. Anyways, luckily Sun had for some reason brought her torch, and, plot spoiler, we made it back. Once again we got the tent set up near midnight in a gale, this time teamed with rain lashing at 45 degrees. After cooking some kind of hot dinner without setting fire to the inside of the tiny tent, we turned in. In the warm sunshine the next morning, we packed and made the 20k walk south along the Rio Grey Valley to the National Park entrance. Here we met a minibus that took us the 90Ks back to Puerto Natales. It had been a cracking few days, and both of us were looking forward to a warm shower and a comfy bed. But as we drove into town that late afternoon, there was the cargo boat we'd seen a few days before in Puerto Montt arriving at the dock. What to do? Should we rest up for a day in town before returning north by bus and maybe plane, or should we go by sea? The boat would be slightly slower, about three days, and our time was running out. But the voyage would take us through the fjords and channels of southern South America that we'd otherwise miss. So we gathered up our weary bones and went down to the port. Yes, they had space for two more passengers, and departure was in less than two hours. So we raced into town to buy some simple provisions for the voyage, then raced to our guest house to collect our luggage and pay for the restful night we wouldn't be having any more and made it back to the boat by the skin of our teeth. Climbing aboard, exhausted, in the last light of another epic day, we couldn't believe our luck. There was Dave, from Australia, who we'd travelled through Bolivia and Peru with a few weeks before. What were the chances? That night we slept on the open-plan metal floor of the lowest deck of the ship, along with the other 40-odd steerage passengers. 
lulled by the deep rumble of the engines and the gentle sway of the ship's passage through the fjords of Patagonia, we had a great night's sleep. The next day was spent watching the misty fjords, islands and maze of channels float silently by. The food on board that came with the price of our fare was surprisingly good, and by the end of lunch we'd met a lot of our fellow travellers. There was Arno, a mid-forties Dutchman who was living in Curaçao. Mark and Marley, both First Nations people, from Whitehorse in the Yukon region of Alaska. And another Australian chap who I'll call Scott to conceal his identity. An alpha, wannabe larrikin from one of Sydney's private boys' schools, whose role in life was to write off anyone he regarded as socially inferior. Mark and Marley became his favourite targets. This was a breed of Australian I hadn't missed in my six years away. And my main purpose in mentioning this bloke is because this was the first time in the nearly year-long trip I'd come across anyone as Nazi as him. Oh, I suppose that racist from Texas who'd been robbed of everything in Barbados was probably similar, though I never got to know him because he lasted less than a day in the village. Anyways, after an hour or so of Scott's company, we all gave him a wide berth. The next day we cruised through more fjords, until the early afternoon when we emerged from the shelter of the channels into the open ocean. I'd just finished a pretty nice lunch on the top deck and was writing in my diary when the first waves rolled beneath us. I hadn't had a good surf since Packers Mayo in northern Peru about three months before, so I was stoked to see the wide horizon and the wind-driven southern ocean swells booming up from Antarctica. Within 15 minutes, I was helpless, heaving seasick for the first time in my life. It wasn't even that rough. The swells were only about two to three metres and the wind no more than 15 knots. For the Southern Ocean, this was a calm day. The voyage before, apparently, was so rough that some cargo was lost overboard and one of the trucks had broken free of its chains and smashed the twisted railings we'd noticed on the vehicle deck when we first got on board. Eventually, Sonara came looking for me and found a pathetic, lone figure dry-retching at every second lurch and bump. Not my best look. Sun suggested I go down to the bottom deck, where we slept. But what did she know? She hadn't spent years on a surfboard. Clearly the best thing to do was to stay out in the fresh air and ride it out. Soon she started feeling queasy herself and retreated downstairs, leaving me to cling to my fresh air theory. But eventually I surrendered and staggered down to do the opposite of what seemed sensible to me. Within five minutes of lying on the metal floor of the lowest level of the ship, where the ship's movements were minimised, I felt fine. Thank goodness. And thank you, son. How embarrassing. I've since learned that this 600-kilometre stretch of open water begins with the Golfo de Peñas, the Gulf of Hardships, and ends with the Golfo de Corcobado, the Gulf of the Hunchback. Very appropriate. Between these two gulfs, you're out in the very non-Pacific Ocean. Calm was restored the next day when we steamed the last 300 kilometres up the channel to Puerto Montt, accompanied by a few dolphins and penguins who danced beneath our bow. Safely back on dry land, we treated ourselves to the luxury of a movement-free couple of hours by going to see The Firm with Tom Cruise and Gian Triplehorn, who were in the film, not the audience. Later that same night, we returned to Santiago on the 12-hour, 1,000-kilometre night bus. Deep breath. Now then, how to spend the last few days in South America. 
If you'd like to see some photos that accompany these stories, you can find them at the We're Only Here Once Instagram page. There's a link in the show notes. You can find the text of the stories at jameswiley.com. music you've been listening to is written by me and played by me and my band the nomads the harmonica you heard was legendary australian blues man vic polyuk check out his page at thebluestrain.com.au big love and thanks to my family and friends without whom this wouldn't exist and if you want to make a podcast look up rod Mori at sydney podcast studios Thanks for dropping in. See ya.